and the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? Evangelical churches today are increasingly dominated by the spirit of this age rather than by the spirit of Christ. But yet, tragically, there are popular evangelical authors and conference speakers today who are teaching that justification is by faith alone, but entering heaven is not by faith alone. There are other conditions to be met. A what? Back to the Reformation. It has been more than 500 years since the Reformation. The 21st century church has departed from the authority of scripture and the gospel. We welcome you to listen in as we go back to the Reformation. The views of this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the churches that the hosts attend. And welcome to the Back to the Reformation podcast. We are here to sound the clarion call for the modern church to go back to its roots in the Reformation. We believe that the Reformers were faithful in recovering the gospel from the medieval church and submitting to the authority of Scripture. My name is Matt Rosenblum, and I'm here with my co-host, Onyx Sianyan. We're here to talk with uh, Dr. Aaron Shryak. Um, Dr. Shryak serves as director of the Tyndale Center for Bible Translation at the Master Seminary. Uh, Dr. Shryak has an MDiv from the Master Seminary, um, Master of Arts and PhD in Linguistics from the University of California, Los Angeles. And before launching the center, Dr. Shryak was involved in linguistic research and translation work in West Africa. Welcome, Dr. Shryak. Thank you. Yeah, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to have you here, man. Great. It's great to be here, Matt and Onik. It's look forward to what we're going to talk about. Great. So, uh, Dr. Shryak, uh, let's start off with a little bit of introduction. Um, please tell us about yourself and the current work that you're doing now and uh, the work you've done in the past. Great. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited to be with you and to talk about the Reformation because most people don't realize how much the Reformation has in fact impacted us, especially in terms of Bible translation. I've, you know, as you mentioned, I'm involved in Bible translation, tr specifically training people to be Bible translators. And when I, um, I, I, as I think about Bible translation, I'm often referring in my classes to the reformers and to men like Luther and um, even Calvin was involved in Bible translation into mm -hmm. French. And William Tyndale, the first translator um, from the Greek and Hebrew into English, he was part of the Reformation work in England. And that um, commitment to the authority of God's Word and the need for the people to have it in a language they understand, that those convictions still drive Bible translation till today. So I teach courses at the Master Seminary in uh, Bible translation, and that flows over into exegesis because translating from the original text, you need to understand how to um, interpret the text, and that also flows into linguistics in the sense that I'm teaching about the semantics and the structure of language and the structure of texts and how that impacts linguistics, I mean, translation. Oh, praise God. Thank you for your service. Well, thank you. So tell us a little about, about your experience in the, in the mission field. Mm -hmm. you know, like where have you been and you know, right. where are you now with this and what are you mm -hmm. doing exactly at this moment? Mm -hmm. Well, I first went over to West Africa to Cameroon and Chad back in 1989. I was a student at that time. And I went over for three months to visit and work alongside a missionary couple, Bob and Joan Duncanson. They were doing... Bible translation into the Musa language, and that's where I got my first real exposure. I was interested in Bible translation and missions and interested in Africa, but I'd never been there, never done it, never seen it. So that was a wonderful experience. I um, arrived and said, here I am, how can I help? And they set me to work drawing pictures for their literacy booklet which helped me learn the language and interact with the people and learn about the culture. And, and then I went on to do some work with them, helping, uh, for example, they needed to add one letter to their alphabet. So we had to go through the New Testament and respell a number of words and check that. And, but it was exciting to see a church that was growing and was eager to have the Word of God in their own language and to see the process. It took years for them to translate. And what was exciting also was to um, be, I didn't realize how historic it, it was at the time, but they had a Toshiba laptop. 
They had <laughs> wow. never had a Toshiba laptop before. Mm. And so I, sh sh I was able to help them with that. I knew a little bit more about floppy disks going in and out and <laughs> upbooting your Toshiba. <laughs> wow. What's a floppy disk? <laughs> so um, um, it was exciting because before that, they had to check everything manually. Hmm. In fact, the, the uh, Bible Society printed out like a foot-high stack of paper. It was a printout of every, it was a list of every word in the New Testament. And they had to go wow. through and check it for typos. <laughs> wow. But, but the, just the state of Bible translation has advanced so much since then. That's but crazy. It was, it was exciting. And then after that, I went back to UCLA, finished my studies there. And during that time, um, I came to the conviction I needed to know theology. I needed to know biblical languages. Linguistics is, is essential, but it's not enough. And so I started seminary. And after seminary uh, my wife and i and our our family we went back to cameroon and we served there for about 10 years with wycliffe bible translators so we were involved in some linguistic work so with my linguistic background i helped um, some of the translation teams uh, craft alphabets for languages or better understand the um, the grammatical structures of some of the languages i also um, began working with a specific group, the Kodoko people. And so um, we produced an alphabet and a literacy book and then a dictionary as well for their language. So those are like the, the foundational pieces that you build on top of when you begin to translate. Unfortunately, with um, the instability in that area with Boko Haram and the, the rise in um, violence and in that area of Cameroon and Nigeria, we weren't able, we haven't been able to go back to that area. But, um, but so, but the Lord opened the door to teach at the Master's Seminary. And so that's what I'm doing right oh, now. Oh, great. Mm -hmm. So I understand that um, there are about 7,000 languages in the world mm -hmm. and uh, another 300 languages in the sign language arts. Exactly. And uh, that are not spoken languages. And of all those languages, it says here that 9% um, have a complete Bible, only 9%. Right. So I assume you would say there is definitely a need for translation even today. Yes. there's For a, Bible there, translation. There's an incredible need. The Imagine 7,000 languages around the world, and of those, only um, 9%, 683 languages have a Bible. So there's an incredible need. In the last 80 years or so, organizations like Wycliffe Bible Translators, um, um, new tribes, other missions that do Bible translation. They've been working diligently and they've produced, they've translated New Testaments into many of those languages. So there's another 1,534 languages that have a New Testament. But then there are, there's roughly you know 2,000 languages that don't have anything. And then there's another 2,658 where there's work in progress, but wow. they haven't finished. So there's a massive amount of work to be done. So we're not talking about different dialects of a single language. No, we're talking no. about different languages. No, we're talking about different languages. In fact, I have a book right here in front of me called 2,000 Languages to Go. That was written in 1959. <laughs> 1959, really? they thought they had 2,000 more languages to translate for. And even that was a breakthrough because four years before that, they thought they had a thousand languages to translate for, but then uh, they were having this mission a mission meeting in Arkansas in 1954, and this man arrives from Papua New Guinea, a researcher, a missionary with a briefcase, and he opens it and he starts telling these missionary leaders, "Look, there are 1,300 languages you've never even heard of in Papua New Guinea. What are you going to do for them?" And so. That's, that's been the picture for the last 80 years, but it looks like this number, 7,361, is pretty set now. And so that's been the, the fruit of a lot of research, a lot of visits to remote corners of the world, trying to establish what is the task in front of us. How many languages are there really? So the amount of language that we see on our current shelf in mm -hmm. you know, America is minuscule to what's really out there. Exactly, exactly. So I have a question, you know, we often see debates over modern translations, you know, we have a lot of the new um, 
Calvinistic movements, you know, the young restless and reformed movements using mm-hmm. the ESV mm-hmm. has become very popular. Right. And we have the NSCB, we have the NSCB update. Mm-hmm. So what's kind of the most accurate translation out there? I mean, what would you suggest people use as far as, you know, in the pulpit today or in the pew? I think I think we are so blessed in English to have so many different translations. So I would say don't tie yourself to one. Actually, if if you, um, I think it's better to look at three or four or five translations. That's what I do. So I typically use the NASB. Um, that's because of my seminary training mm-hmm. and my background and what our church. That's just the the um, Bible that our church uses, but I use the ESV, I use the NIV 1984, um, the Holman Christian Standard, I like that as well. And sometimes when a verse sounds really awkward and I don't understand it, I might look over at the New Living Translation right. and see how did they try to say it in a little more yep. natural English. And so I think that for a church, it's good when everyone uses the same translation. There's nothing wrong with that. But in your own study, I would use as many translations as you can. And what happens is where they all differ, that's where you pause because there's some rich history there. It may be um, that the text is not clear. Um, It may be that there's a word like the churches have differed on whether to use bishop or do you use, um, you know, bishop or shepherd or presbyter uh, presbyter you know there's some of these topics that are have been debated over the centuries so take take advantage of the richness of what we have because i've been in touch with the latvian bible society i've just published a paper on a topic in the latvian bible and one thing that struck me is that they have today um, essentially one latvian bible it was published in 2012, the latest version. Before that, there was a version that was done in 65. And before that, there was a revision from 1895. So they they are grateful and they have a wonderful Bible, but they don't have what we have, the ability to look at five translations. And instead of seeing that as, as a problem, I see that as an opportunity to, to look more into what's behind the text. Uh, can you tell us more about that? What differentiates these uh, translations? Um, are they literal, dynamic? What are the exact differentiations? Mm-hmm. Well, those are the those are the terms you'll hear, right? You'll hear that some translations are more dynamic, some are more literal. What do you mean by dynamic for the audience? And, okay. Uh, yep. Well, if you um, look at, for example, the um, Good News Bible, um, the New Living Bible, they'll describe themselves as dynamic. And that's a term that goes back to a, a uh, translator by the name of Eugene Nida. And his idea behind dynamic was that when you read this, it's going to affect you. You're going you're gonna to respond because you understand it clearly. And he's contrasting it with formal translations, which were the translations of the day. Um, so the King James Version at that time, or the uh, Revised Standard Version. Um, He would call those formal. But isn't the King James the truly inspired version? (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's what I thought. um, So, well, actually, I lectured on that topic uh, just recently. (laughs) Um, What's what's interesting is um, inspiration, um, that's the quality of being, you know, from God, you know, First, Second uh, Timothy three sixteen. All Scripture is inspired by God or breathed out by God. So only the autograph, the original, is inspired. Right. But what is the translation? Well, the translation is not inspired, but it, it's authoritative, it's inerrant, but it's not. It, it's a derived inerrancy because how can you revise your King James Version? How can you revise any translation if you say it's inerrant? Right. It's not yeah. inerrant, but That's it has, a, a, point. Yeah, it has a derived inerrancy to the extent that it's faithful to the original. So that's a that's a topic that was debated in the Reformation era and sort of has faded away, but it's come back because of the, the debate over the King James Version. But um, 
And even today, that's being mm-hmm. doubted by, you know, like higher critical scholars. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have people like Bart Ehrman, who right. believes we can't even get to the original. Right, right. So I would, but to go back to your original question, uh, for the formal translations, they're the translations that say we want to be more faithful to the tradition. What is the tradition in English translation? Um, we want to stra- stay closer to the wordings that we're familiar with. And in some case, it's not normal, standard, the way we would speak English today, but they would say that's fine. And, but the dynamic side, what they really are after is what's called naturalness. They want to say the, it in the way that we would say it today. And sometimes it's a very small difference. Um, there may not be a real difference in meaning, but it sounds very different. So I, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's very formal, um, traditional English, but we don't say shall today very yep. much. Mm-hmm. So you'd say, I will not want. But wait a minute, that's not want the way we mean today. It's I will not lack. So um, if a translation is more formal, they want they have a high view of the tradition in English. They'll say, I I will not la- I will not want. Mm-hmm. But a Bible translation that says, no, I want to be closer to how we would say it today, would be concerned about the fact there's no object after lack. I will not lack what, you know. And they might even invert it and say, I have everything I need, which is going far from the form, but it's getting closer to how we might express it in English today. And then you'd have the the, the explosions go off and the discussion starts because, wait a minute, you just turned it from an... Uh, from I will not want to I have everything I need. So you've really changed the form at that point. So this goes into the debate where are you are you being faithful to the order of the Greek language, right? Exactly. So like the mm-hmm. NSAB mm-hmm. and then comparing that, for instance, to the debate on the NIV, mm-hmm. right? where it's more of a paraphrase. Well, the, it's not a... Well, It'd be closer to a paraphrase, correct, in the, well, in the NIV? Well, I like to keep the word paraphrase because there are certain, um, let's call them books, <laughs> that say they're paraphrases, like the Living Bible. It says, and the message, that's the best example today because people are very familiar with the message. Yep. That says, this is a paraphrase. And a paraphrase, the translator is free to just add things that aren't in the text in any reasonable way. And so that's that's what marks the paraphrase, whereas... Um, a looser translation or a more dynamic translation would um, not go that far. So there's, there's, there's a continuum. So the NIV is around the middle of the continuum. But for example, with Psalm, the 23rd Psalm, I think they say, I shall not be in want, which is interesting because they wanted to keep the, the word want. But they knew that people didn't quite understand it the way they used to. So they changed it to be and want. So there, they're a little bit paraphrastic. Hmm. Earlier when uh, we spoke, you were talking about also how uh, the translations like to uh, preserve tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, can you expound on that? Well, um, a good example of that is the word ecclesia. Um, the when that was first translated into English by um, uh, Wycliffe around 1382, he used the word church. But when Tyndale translated from Greek, he decided to use um, assembly. So, because he knew that ecclesia, um, it didn't mean a building. It didn't mean an organization. It was a group of people. And so he wanted to use a congregation or assembly. Now, the, that ran counter to the church and tradition. So even in the King James Version and other versions that were reformed, done by reformers, they wrestled with that and decided to go with church. So now we still have church. But I think the Geneva Bible, done by the, the exiles who fled from England and settled in Geneva, I think they also used congregation. Right, because some to... of them say congregation in the wilderness, others say church in the wilderness, right? Right, right. And I, from my, what I believe is true is that it actually comes from the word kahal, right, in the mm-hmm. Hebrew, which is congregation. 
Mm-hmm. That's where it's derived from. Right, and ecclesia is also translated as mob in um, in Acts. So it refers to people, a group of people first and foremost. Then by extension, it's it's it is a the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. It's a it's an, you can think of it as an organization, or it's we use it in English as an event. I went to church, or as a place. I bought a church. Um, but those meanings we're bringing in from English, not bringing in from Greek. Mm. So that's a good example of theology and tradition. Also, going back to the King James Version, you said something about uh, a great majority of it was from the Tyndale translation. Exactly. Yeah, the King James Version, people often think it was a translation itself directly from the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic with no prejudice from prior work the king james yes so it was a direct translation from god (laughs) exactly (laughs) but every translator if you talk to a translator translators translate with fear and trembling and they would never say that they're inspired but more than that they very much respect tradition and precedent translators are not usually aren't very creative let's go wild with the text kind of people so the translators who did the King James Version, they actually went through everything that had come before them, and they pulled out the best. And so 85% of the King James uh, New Testament fits perfectly with what Tyndale did in, in 1526. So that tells you that first, his translation was very good, and no one could improve on it. And perhaps it was also that the the church and the people who had grown up hearing it, they just loved the way it sounded. Because he, in 1526, his first translation, he said, blessed are the maintainers of peace. Hmm. But then in his revision, he changed it. Blessed are the peacemakers. Because even he was like debating, oh, that doesn't quite sound right. Maintainers of peace. (laughs) So he changed it to peacemakers. And that stuck till today. So when someone translates as well as Tyndale did, it just it, it has a sticking a staying power. Okay, so we talked about the um, the work it takes to for um, biblical translation. So what types of controversies did you come across? We spoke about the Son of God controversy. What exactly right. is that? Well, you you might remember. I think it was around two thousand twelve. Um, there was a lot of talk in the Christian media about Bibles that did not contain the word Son of God in them. And you think about that for a moment. A New Testament without Son of God in it? Hmm. I mean, how can you? How could that be a faithful translation? And so what gradually came out over a year or two was that there was translation work being done in a Muslim context, meaning translations being done into Arabic and to other languages that were spoken predominantly predominantly by Muslim communities. And in those situations, the translators made a decision. We don't want the translation to be a stumbling block for the gospel. Therefore, um, and, and they a number of them recounted experiences where someone would be reading their Bible in Arabic, and they would come across the phrase, Son of God, and they would just drop the Bible and say, this is the end of it. I mean, I had that experience too. I was reading through the Gospel of Matthew with a Muslim man, and when he got to Son of God, he stopped. He won't have any of it. Yeah, he said, this is heresy. And I said, why? And we had a little discussion, and I convinced him to keep going. There's more to this. Let's just keep reading. Yep. Um, and that's, I think, my personally, when you think about um, Muslims and evangelism, there's a lot of teaching and reteaching that takes time as you interact with people. They need to understand the Christian use of terms, which is very different from the Islamic use of certain terms. So the translators decided, let's let's produce a translation without Son of God in it because it'll be misunderstood. Just to give a little context, what is the Muslim belief about Jesus? Well, they would say that he was a prophet and that he was not, he should not be referred to as son of God, because that is a a blasphemous, um, just incendiary sort of comment. You're claiming 
that God had a relationship with Mary that produced Jesus. Mm. And how could you make such an assertion? So they take it in a very personal, negative light. And so what the Christian has to do is say, you know, Son of God is a title. It was used for hundreds of years before Christ. You find it in the Old Testament. It's a title, and it refers to Christ's deity. And it's not anything to do with a sexual relationship. And then that leads to the deity of Christ, which is another discussion. Right, many times found in the Mm -hmm. book of Mark, and then originally taken from the book of Daniel. Exactly, exactly. So you have to give um, a Muslim that sort of biblical context and and just work with them because it says in the Quran that you shouldn't call um, Jesus the Son of God. So they they have that background as they see the term and they know it's there. You know, if anyone has read any scriptures, if a Muslim has been um, taught about apologetics with Christians, um, I've heard that it's not uncommon for Muslims who are who are preparing to witness or engage with Christians, that they'll read the Gospel of John and they'll see how it's used there. So it's not something that they should be surprised by, um, and it is something they'll object to, but that doesn't mean that you change the Bible. Um, You should translate Son of God as Son of God. You know what I find ironic about this whole Mm -hmm. debate is that you see in uh, modern American critical scholarship uh, saying that, you know, this son of God saying is not a messianic term, right? Mm. But it's interesting, though, that the Muslims actually understand it immediately. Exactly. Exactly. They see the thrust of it. Right, right. And so the this um, movement, it's, it's become, the term for it now is Muslim um, idiom translation. The idea is, Let's take out the expression Son of God. We'll use another expression, like the Beloved of God or the Messiah. And let's um, put something perhaps in a footnote to help the reader. But we'll take the immediate offense away and we'll try to basically dial back the theological distinctiveness of the scriptures in order to gain a hearing. And that's... um, So I think... At an apologetic level, I think that's a very poor decision because they're going to... Basically, you you put yourself in a position to be hit with two things now. One, you are corrupting God's Word further. Mm-hmm. All Christians are thought to corrupt God's Word, and now they can prove that you're engaging in that even further. And second, you can't avoid having to discuss the issue of Son of God. So it just I think it complicates the, the task of witnessing. And if you wanted to witness more effectively and you think Son of God is an issue, then just produce a track that doesn't have that term and say, this is a track. This is a booklet. And there's a slippery slope to it because, mm-hmm. you know, what other terms are you going to take out in the future? Exactly. Exactly. It reminds me of uh, some of the liberal controversies where the gender-neutral Bible comes out and they remove the term exactly. Father. Mm-hmm. Um, when God himself has revealed himself as Father. So. Exactly. That's another Good term point. that... Sometimes in the Muslim idiom translations, they struggle with that as well because the fatherhood of God in the, um, is another concept that Muslims struggle with. Very good. So let's talk about um, you know, this whole issue in regards to translation and um, tying it to the Reformation. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're looking at the modern church through the lens of the Reformation. And what's the application for this? Um, first of all, you know, where do these guys like Wycliffe and Tyndale um, tie into the Reformation? Who are these guys? And why are they so important? Mm-hmm. Well, William, well, John, let's start with John Wycliffe. Um, um, he was born around 1320, and he died in 1384. So he's well before the Reformation. But he's called the Morning Star of the Reformation because a lot of his writings influenced the reformers and one thing that he was really passionate about was anchoring our faith in the authority of god's word and not in the church and during his time there was a schism and there were two popes so you had the popes condemning each other as heretics and writing bulls against each other and in this context i mean he that really shook him i mean how can we say the church is authoritative 
the church holds all truth when the two popes can't even agree on which one should be in charge. Exactly. Yep. So that led him to really study the scriptures, and he concluded that, that the authority is in the scriptures. And therefore, everyone needs the scriptures. And therefore, he started translating into English. So the only scripture they had at that time in England was the Bible in Latin. And so he gathered together a group, and they started translating the Bible into, from Latin into English. And then he trained these lay preachers who would go out with these portions of scripture and eventually with complete Bibles, and they would preach high and low throughout England. And it totally enraged the organized church. And he was eventually condemned, and he died in 18, uh, 1384 before they could actually declare him a heretic and burn him at the stake. But they still dug up his bones and, buried, and burned his bones. But um, How kind. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, and what happened after that was there was a, a period until the Reformation where you had the Lollards in England. And they were a movement centered on reading, teaching, cherishing the Word of God in English. And the organized church, the Catholic church, would actually periodically go on a hunt for them and, and persecute them, arrest them, have them do public penance in the, in the local cathedral, um, or even worse, you know, for their using the Bible in English. So... But that then, and then when the Reformation began in England, um, there was that group, the Lollards, who just rallied um, behind and were excited that God's word was now available in English. So that leads us up to William Tyndale, because when um, Luther's writings arrived in England, he was um, at Cambridge. He studied at Oxford. So William Tyndale was one of the, you know, he was one of the top scholars of his day trained at Oxford, preparing to be a priest. But in the course of his trainings, he, training, he learned Greek. And that started a, a desire in him to get the truth in the Greek New Testament to the people. I mean, he even went out and he would preach in the open fields. Because as a priest, he couldn't really do that in the church. But he could go out in the open air fields and preach. And so he eventually started translating into English. But he knew he wanted this to be something for the church and for all of England. So he went to the bishop in London. There was a um, a, a document from the Church of England um, saying you cannot translate unless you have the approval of a bishop. So it's sort of like the FBI saying you can't make pipe bombs without our approval. <laughs> <laughs> so he went to the bishop right. of London and he asked permission. And he even gave the bishop an example of his translation work from a classic Greek text into English. He couldn't show him his translation of Mark or something because he might get in trouble. Wow. But And the the Bishop of London basically said, sorry, you can't approve this. But he realized that now he was a marked man. Just as though if the fifth FBI said, you can't make pipe bombs, you know, they're going to be yeah. watching you now. Yeah. So he Jeez. fled to the continent and there he began to translate. And his translations into English then fueled the English Reformation. So there was a network of reform-minded people who were smuggling his New Testaments across the English Channel and were selling them in England. And that just ignited the, the um, Reformation in England. To regress a little bit, mm -hmm. let's go back to even um, Luther's time mm -hmm. and before. You know, right. uh, let's, can you please tell the audience um, about... What was the status of uh, the of the lady in regards to mm -hmm. having Bibles? Right. So during the Middle Ages, um, Bibles were very few and far between. They were very expensive to make. Um, they were done by hand. And so you had, um, at different monasteries, you would have special rooms where they would meet, the monks would meet, and they would copy by hand different manuscripts. Very slow process, but... The scriptures were available in monasteries and the cathedrals, but it was in Latin. And there was a view that only the, the priest could touch the book and read it, and the people didn't really need it. They would just misunderstand it. So there wasn't a passion to actually 
teach the people the word. There were a few like bright spots, um, but overall, uh, people didn't have access to God's word. And so that's why Luther, when he was saved and started, one of the first things he did as part of the Reformation in Germany was he translated the New Testament into German and they started printing it. So that's another thing that helped fuel the Reformation was the printing press. And this goes back to Wittenberg, to the mm -hmm. first printing press. Right? Exactly. So they printed the the Luther's New Testament and thousands of copies, and it just set um, Germany afire. You know, afire. So, um, and Luther was translating and revising his translation for the rest of his life. He he was he got, gathered a team of scholars. They um, did the Old Testament, and then they produced the entire Bible, and then he was revising that and also writing about the importance of translation and defending his translation. And so translation has been part of, was an, a key part of the, um, the Reformation. Now, he had an opponent who we mm. see in the bondage of the will with Luther, right. Erasmus. Erasmus. Now, he was a translator of the Bible. Exactly. Yeah, he, he revised, well, he, he collected the best texts of the day of the Greek New Testament and made that available, but he also critiqued and t attempted to revise the Vulgate based on the better Greek texts, and he thought, he wrote uh, for in the preface to his book, I think it was to his um, Greek New Testament, he wrote that he wanted people to know the word in their language, um, he wanted the people, the traveler, as he goes along his way to pass the time reading the word. But he never went so far as to engage in translating for the people like Luther did and Tyndale did, because he realized it was very controversial. The Pope, you know, he dedicated his work to the Pope with the hopes that he wouldn't get burned. And that worked, but he, mm. he didn't go as far, he didn't follow his convictions all the way to translate, for example, into Dutch or German or mm. one of the languages of the day. But he fueled it by making those resources available. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So when we look back and we, you know, think about Luther and Calvin preaching from the pulpit mm -hmm. of their day, mm -hmm. what did their Bibles look like? I mean, what were they reading from? I mean, how close was it to something that we would have today? Well, um, Luther, I, I'm not a uh, scholar on Luther, but I would assume that he had his, um, his translated German text in front of him. And it would be, you could compare it to the King James Version because it was using the same Greek and Hebrew texts um, that were used for that, essentially. Um, and it would be a little bit different from the King James in that they had a lot of footnotes if you have a chance to look at a Geneva Bible, um, you'll see that there's a lot of footnotes in there. One thing about the King James Bible is that they decided to take out a lot of the footnotes. because, um, And even to this day, I was at a Bible translation conference, and everyone was talking about how no one reads footnotes. No one reads footnotes. But actually, yep. during the Reformation, that's what everyone read, because that's where you put the... The interesting. the interesting comments and the wow. little jabs at kings and popes. <laughs> you put them in the footnotes. And um, they were very um, intriguing reading. Um, and that's why King James Version didn't have footnotes. Just the bare minimal um, um, t uh, tools for, for studying Those guys text. weren't shy about their opinions back no, in the day. No, they weren't. No, they weren't. And that's, what, that's why the Geneva, the Geneva Version of the English Bible was an excellent translation and it influenced the King James Version as well and but it was it was the footnotes and some of the comments about the king in the footnotes that that did it in so interesting uh, you brought a book you brought a book over there mm -hmm. um, can you tell us a little about a little bit about that so um, disputations on Holy Scripture by uh, William Whitaker mm -hmm. for for the audience sake it's a big text. It looks like a, a green cover, like a systematic theology. And right. it says, Disputations of Holy Scripture. Right. So, I'm, I'm very passionate about Bible translation. And one of the questions I've been exploring recently is, why do we translate Scripture? 
and nowadays you're hard pressed to find a very lengthy discussion of that point because it's i think it's so much a part of our history and our culture that no one even questions it but uh william whitaker was, questions i'm sorry questions the need for it exactly okay. especially in english now yeah. i mean who would stand up and say we don't need bibles in english no one would right in fact we have new versions and new translations coming out almost every year because Americans will buy a new Bible. So it's, um, there's no incentive to do, to question that. But William Whitaker was a theologian. He lived during the period after Tyndale and before the King James Version came out in 1611. And during that period, there was still a debate. There was a, still an active debate about, um, what is the response to the Roman Catholic Church? Is the Latin Vulgate authoritative in any way? Is a, is a, can a translation be authoritative? And why do we need the Bible in English? And so he has a lengthy section, I really enjoyed reading it, on why everyone needs a Bible in their own language. And he's thinking primarily for English speakers, um, but um, he goes through, and one thing that really struck me was one of his arguments is we should follow the example of the early church and the early fathers. And he quotes um, a father from roughly 400 AD, Theodoret, who said um, that at his time, as he looked around, there was a Bible in Latin, a Bible in um, Greek. The Old Testament had been translated into Armenian, Indian, um, Scythian. And so he was saying, basically, in all the languages of our area. So, um, yes. Interesting. Uh, speaking about the um, translation in Armenian, um, mm -hmm. we were talking about earlier at our meeting um, how the Armenian modern Armenian translation was actually a translation by um, American uh, missionaries right. uh, back in about the uh, 18th century. Mm -hmm. So... It's just mind-boggling how um, we much of the at least the Armenian people that I know of don't know the history of the modern translation mm -hmm. and uh, just what is owed to the missionaries and the translators that went out there and did such such a great work. Yeah. Um, if we can talk about more about the Arabic uh, Bibles, and we talked about um, earlier that uh, they're trying to take uh, trying to reinterpret Yahweh as Lord and um, to follow or not follow the Vulgate or the English. We, we spoke something sh uh, shortly on that. Right, right. I can um, ex um, say some more about that. Sure. So there there are three terms in the Old Testament in Hebrew for, for God. So there's God's personal name that he you only know if he tells you. That's Yahweh and Jehovah um, in the American Standard Version of 1901, they translated as Jehovah, but before that and since then, it's been translated in English as Lord with small caps. So the Lord is my shepherd. If you look at that, Psalm 23, it'll be small cap L-O-R-D. So that's God's personal name that you yes so you wouldn't advise using the new world translation would you <laughs> <laughs> does that do they use yahweh <laughs> well i wouldn't use it for other reasons right, right. <laughs> <laughs> now now that term for god yahweh his personal name has been um an issue from the very beginning because the jewish community felt that out of reverence for god you don't use his personal name sort of like you know you don't call someone you know, of high status by their first name, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, they had a tradition of using other terms. So when they saw um, Yahweh in the Old Testament and they were reading it, they might substitute Lord for it. And so that's what you see in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, in the Greek, when there's a, a quote from an Old Testament passage, in the Greek, you don't see Yahweh, you see Lord. Mm-hmm. So that started a tradition of saying, well, we'll just go back to the Old Testament and we'll translate Yahweh as Lord. So that's a tradition that's time-honored and that's an option for translating Yahweh is to translate it with, um, with the term Lord in English. So um, the other more common term for God is Elohim. 
And in English, we would translate as God with a capital G. So you have God and you have Yahweh, and then you have Lord as well. So Adonai. So you have those three terms. So a good translation is going to keep those three terms different. Um, unfortunately, you know, in English, we go with Lord, Adonai's Lord, and Yahweh's Lord, but at least they're spelled differently. Mm -hmm. So the careful student will see that these are different. But the there's a current um, um, there's a current movement now in translation, especially with Muslim idiom translations, that say, you know what? God's personal name in Hebrew it's Yahweh, but if you ask a Muslim what is God's personal name, they're not going to say Yahweh. They're going to say Allah. So let's translate Yahweh as Allah. Now, their argument would be this is the functional equivalent. You know, it's like, you know, in English we call you daddy, mm -hmm. and in Aramaic it's Abba. So we'll just call it, we'll translate Abba as daddy. It's the equivalent. But you can't do that though, because names are not like terms of address. So this is God's personal name, and it's tied with the concept of being, because Yahweh comes from the the expression "I am," and so some translations. Ego on me. Right, right. So some translations, like the French, the early French translations, translated Yahweh as "L'Eternel," the Eternal One, to bring out that aspect of the meaning instead of translating it as Yahweh. So. This is a, a very dangerous move because you're taking the distinctive name of God that sets God and the people of Israel apart from other peoples and other gods, and you're making the God who appeared on Mount Sinai and said to Moses, my name is Yahweh, all of a sudden he's speaking as though he's in a Muslim context. My name is Allah. And I think that really conf just you take the distinctive Christian message and you're blurring it. And the, the reason, they're, they're sort of apologetic. The reason they blur it is because they, don't, they want to make the scriptures a little more comfortable for the Muslim. For the Muslim to hear that God told Moses his name was Allah is comforting. Yes, we knew it. You know, we knew there was truth in your scriptures, but that's not what we're supposed to do with the scriptures. Mm -hmm. The scriptures should challenge and, and challenge the Muslim with the thought, with the truth that there, there's, there is a truth about God that they don't know. God has the name Yahweh that Muhammad did not know. And so that's the proper translation. And do you think the... Um the material being objectionable comes from the pre-existing prejudices that they have between the cultures. Um, right, Arabic right. Just like with the yeah. Son of God issue. Yeah. Um, it, the, you know, Islam was birthed in contrast to Christianity and Judaism. And so it, they're not like two independent faiths that knew nothing about each other. So, um, so you have to bring out the distinctive message of the scriptures even if it's um, offensive to the, the audience, because that's the, the most important thing is that we're faithful to the scriptures, right. because we are just messengers. We don't change our message. You deliver the message you were given. So you have to be faithful. And that goes back to the Reformation, to mm -hmm. the authority of scripture. Mm -hmm. I mean, these men did what they had to do to recover mm -hmm. the gospel mm -hmm. and the authority of scripture um, as we see it today. Exactly. And that was part of the reason they also unpacked the the Yahweh and tried to make that meaning distinct because it was it was hidden in the Vulgate because the Vulgate going back to the New Testament tradition didn't use a distinct term for Lord and so like the French translation using L'Eternel they're trying to unpack that truth and present it as clearly as possible like you say because God's word is inspired, it's authoritative, and they were willing to even go to the stake and die for that. So, Hence the term sola scriptura. Yes, exactly. Let's take it back a little bit to um, your experience on the mission field. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we often you know, hear about the doctrines of grace and we mm -hmm. study them here. Mm -hmm. 
and we um, were at a time in our lives, even before we were um, introduced to the doctrines of grace, where in most of our um, upbringing, we experienced Arminianism. Mm -hmm. I came out of it. Um, I was originally from Calvary Chapel, and I thank God for the ministry of Calvary Chapel because he Mm -hmm. used them to save me. Mm -hmm. But um, in my experience, um, and I think it's also because of depravity, where I disliked the doctors of grace when I first heard them, or at mm-hmm. least how they were presented. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were, and there was a, a presuppositional antipathy, right, from the pulpit as well. Mm-hmm. And you find it a lot amongst a lot of American churches as well. I mean, I would say that Reformed and Calvinistic churches are very far and few in between, mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. So when you um, have introduced the doctrines of grace to uh, the native in the field, what what's the reception like well i um this summer i was in cameroon and um, i was preaching there at a church that's very solid in in their doctrine and and my message was on the sovereignty of god and the life of joseph because i think if you look well the, there's the um that just well-known verse where he um, Joseph tells his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And if you take that verse and start unpacking it and tracing that through the life of Joseph, you can't come away without saying that God was sovereign and directing every detail of his life. And so I, I shared that, and that, that was really well received. And I think there are congregations like that that are that clearly understand God's sovereignty and that that's, not, that's something to embrace because it gives you a comfort you know that that things will work for good, um, and I think, on one hand, that may not be so difficult um, a, a truth to embrace in Cameroon because um, Cameroonians, I don't want to overly generalize, but they immediately recognize that there is a spiritual dimension to life, that there is a God, they're spiritual beings, and that they are powerless, and that. I think has prepared some hearts for the truth of scripture. Unfortunately, there are far too many who have gone into the um, faith and health and wealth kind of churches, like in the West. Yep. Those are present as well, and those are growing. And that's unfortunate. Yeah, that's that's an unfortunate um, aspect of of life there as well. But so you're saying specifically in West Africa, you mm-hmm. you see much of that. Right. Right. So. Basically, what you're saying with the Cameroons is that they have more of a comprehensive Christian worldview. They definitely don't see themselves as the center. And they very much see themselves living in dependence, in dependence um, to God. And even if they don't acknowledge the Creator God, they live in fear of spirits and the ancestors. The pastor I was um, visiting shared his testimony about how his family to this day worships their ancestors and keeps their skulls in a special shrine and would go and offer sacrifices. And he shared how his father lives in fear of his ancestors and how Christ freed him from that. And when he um, accepted Christ, he he didn't have any trouble believing that God was sovereign. He just mm-hmm. saw it in everything that happened in his life. When I hear you say this, it's surreal to hear that. You know, mm-hmm. it sounds like some something from Indiana Jones, right? <laughs> it's like, could this really be happening? But stuff like this really does happen. Mm-hmm. Yes. They, they, well, all across the world, um, many different cultures, if God is not sovereign, who is? Well, it must be your ancestors and, and the spirit world. And in that way, they're, they're much more receptive to the truth of Scripture. You don't have to debate with them that they're demons. They know they're demons. They're, they're, they've, um, I remember when I first went to Cameroon and lived with a family, and the kids were telling me not to go out at night because they're demons. And that actually was good in the sense that it let me talk about the power of Christ, mm. as opposed to here, people you know, aren't even thinking that there's anything spiritual that they need to be concerned about. Did you see a lot of demonic activity out in the field? Not personally, or at least I didn't think I did, but um, the the believers there often would share accounts of things happening, and, um, and they're very much um, in tune with that. 
It's interesting because recently I was listening to Mike Horton's show, mm -hmm. you know, on um, Core Christianity, and he was talking about his experience in India, mm. and he said that he saw demonic possession all over the mm. place mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because, you know, their Hinduism, right. is that they actually ask the gods, these gods, demonic forces mm -hmm. to actually come into mm -hmm. their bodies. Mm -hmm. That's just part of their religion. Right, right. Yeah, that's in Cameroon, you have mediums. And spiritists, that's what they do. They ask a spirit to possess them, to give them knowledge. And so, and unfortunately, that's so much a part of their life and culture that even sometimes Christians, if they something traumatic happens, like a child gets lost or, or someone's hurt, they'll go to the spiritist and say, can you help us find where our child is? Uh, can you ask the spirits? And so... There in the churches, you often will hear teaching about that or exhortations. You know, God is sovereign. You have to trust God. So don't go ask the spiritist, you know, to find something for you. So there was more of a natural reception to these people since it was just part of the scripture that you mm -hmm. were teaching, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't something like, okay, go pick up the five points of Calvinism right. and then we're going to go over right. the tulip now. Right. Yeah, there's just a, 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 they're more in tune with the fact that God and, and the spiritual world is part of everything. The very first um, Muse believe I was up in the north of Cameroon when I first went, and there was a large church there among a group called the Masa. And the very first Masa believer was a witchcraft, was a witch sort of spiritist, shaman himself. And the reason he came to speak to the missionary was he saw the missionary preaching one day and went to make fun of him and as he walked up to the missionary he couldn't speak Interesting. A and he he went home that day and said this man has a power greater than mine and so he went and asked the missionary what is it that you have you have a power smart uh, greater than my power mm. and the missionary wow. led him to the lord so, that's incredible yeah. wow <laughs> that's really neat interesting mm. Okay, so this has all been fascinating, Dr. Shryak. So tell us more about the Tyndale School for Bible Translation. Right, right. So um, I'm at the Master's Seminary, and there we have the Tyndale Center for Bible Translation. And the Tyndale Center has a couple different um, um, focuses. Uh, first, we are I'm teaching courses, so I... Like this semester, I'm teaching Introduction to Bible Translation that gives an overview of the whole ministry of Bible translation. And I'm also teaching a class called Theory and Practice of Translation. That's my more advanced class where we get into some of these issues like Muslim idiom translations and the theological grounds for translation. Um, and then I'm also involved in trying to just generally raise awareness of the need for Bible translation and for translators. So I wrote an article, um, it's on the Master Seminary blog, called Why Translate the Bible? Because I'm shocked at how many Americans think everybody has a Bible. So I gave my, you know, I wrote that article to get people to think about why we need to do this. And there's another article we wrote, Where There Is No Bible, because there are thousands of churches, and some of them young churches, where they don't have the scriptures in their language. And people will ask me, well, can't they use English or use French or use whatever the language is in that corner of the world? And so I talked to missionaries around the world and said, what happens to a group of believers who never get the Bible in their own language? And so I wrote up this article laying out like three things that happen to groups like that. Mm -hmm. So that's part of um, raising awareness and getting people to think about it, of the need. And then another thing is research. So uh, we're publishing, I mentioned earlier, a paper on the Latvian Bible. And Lord willing, there'll be other, um, other research coming out. I'm speaking um, at a conference on Bible translation about the theological basis for translation and the role of the incarnation. Uh, there's a real common um, um, view that's presented, and it's not really defended, it's just sort of presented as being axiomatic, that the incarnation of Christ is a motivation for us to translate. And so I'm going to present a paper where I say the incarnation of Christ 
is wonderful. It's true. I believe it, and it has nothing to do with Bible translation. It's <laughs> right. the exaltation of Christ. Oh, great. Yep. It's the fact that he is worthy of all praise. He has all authority on heaven and earth, and his church is being built. That's why we translate. Mm. Not because he came in, in, in a bodily form. Um, that the act of incarnation, as important as it is, is not what drives us. So those are some of the things that we're, I'm doing at the Tyndale Center. That's wonderful. And they can, uh, our, our listeners can find out more by going to tms.edu. That's right. Okay. So if they go to um, www.tms.edu and they could put in slash Tyndale or they could just search for Tyndale Center for Bible Translation. Great. Wonderful. Excellent. And we want to thank you, you know, for coming on the podcast. Great. It was sure thank a pleasure, you. man. Great. I really enjoyed it. Thank it was you so really much. interesting. Well, this has been another episode of Back to the Reformation, and we hope you join us next time for another episode. Until next time, see ya.